This is how much people have thought about this over the years. Especially in Christian traditions, there is an obsession over the subject of demons. The demons we see in the New Testament were flat out not smart enough, cunning enough, or well-mannered enough to be Satan's henchmen or his soldiers. They don't seem remotely capable of helping wage war. And from there, it's just more, and yeah, he went here and did this and that and cast out demons. I wonder how long it took for the demons mm. to come back when Jesus left. And we've heard it all before many, many times and a few times tonight. A Christian can't be demon-possessed. So, you better become a Christian. You know, I have news for you. They don't bother atheists either. So don't cower before a God who doesn't exist and would hate you enough to sick demons on you to get you to obey him if he did. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. Well, we won't have to turn over any rocks, (laughs) but we did do a lot of digging on this one. More supernatural hysteria that Christianity has taken and exploded into something that is not only used to keep the fear factor high, but has also permeated pop culture, literature, and more with its stereotypes and misconceptions. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this time around, we're talking about demons and how they've been presented throughout history. Like occultism, lore about demons is as old as human history, and throughout the years, the application of demonology has become more and more inflated and ridiculous. Fortunately, there are plenty of people out there who also see the humor in the subject, and some authors have even used the concept of demons to further very atheistic ideas. But before we get into any of that, just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash network. If you have a fiver you can throw our way, we will put it to good use and help more people get and stay unbound. If you're a little bit short on cash right now, just keep doing what you've been doing. If you're a longtime listener and you've been sharing content and you've been telling people about us and you've been linking out in social media and doing all the things that help podcasts grow, just keep up the good work. And like I say every week, make a point of telling someone about us this week who hasn't heard. Again, if you can help us financially, patreon.com slash network. If not, likes, shares, five-star ratings, reviews, and all of those things are going to help us help others get and stay unbound. And just before we get into our main topic... Just want to remind you, next week is the fifth Sunday of this month, and also Halloween. So we're doing something a little bit different with the show, and we're going to see how well it works. We will be doing our review of the movie The Witch, and I think that it's one that if you liked our episode on Salem last year, you're really going to like our take on this because it's a story that basically could have happened. In Salem at the same time and comes from the same time period. And I'm not going to spoil too much because it's such a good movie. And we're going to go through it literally scene by scene and discuss what's going on. Talk about some of the parallels between this story and the Salem witch hunts and just the mindset of the time that this movie was made. Right now, we've got a lot to cover on the subject of demons. So let's just get right into it. start off answering the question, what is a demon? Here's the very basic and very obvious answer. A demon is a supernatural being typically associated with evil, prevalent historically in religion, occultism, literature, fiction, mythology, and folklore, as well as in media such as comics, video games, movies, anime, and television series. In other words, if there's an entertainment medium out there, there's (laughs) something out there about demons. So we're going to talk about some of these examples as we go tonight. But first, I want to talk about the subject of demonology itself and make sure that we understand a couple of things about this. The concept of demons seems to be largely confined to Western monotheistic religions, but it goes back much further. 
even the earliest human civilizations included demonologies as part of their culture's mythologies. Now, don't let the ology part of this fool you, because even people who identify as demonologists don't consider themselves to be scientists or purport to be studying anything scientific. But since ology can also mean, and literally means, the study of, mm. it's a legit descriptor. And yes, the concept of demons, like occultism, is as old as our species, so evidenced in their appearance in Mesopotamian mythology, along with a lot of others. Mm. So before I get too far into that part of it, let's just answer one simple question that falls on the heels of our conversation last week. Right. Are demons occultic? In a word, yes. They are supernatural beings, so they pass that litmus test. Practitioners believe they can be conjured and summoned for various purposes, using various forms of magic and divination, just like any other force or entity. They are also said to operate on a plane of existence that is hidden from the mortal world, requiring mediumship to bring them into our realm. Mediumship of one type or another, and possession right. does count yes. in that arena. And the next question that we need to tackle here is, are demons fallen angels? The first thing that I thought of when I decided I was going to do this was the clear differences between fallen angels and demons in the Bible. But here's the thing. Most Christians, and they don't even have to be evangelicals, most right. Christians in general will see these terms as synonymous. Fallen right. angels and demons are in the minds of most Christians the same thing. But I beg to differ, and here are a few reasons why. For starters, it's assumed from a lot of pulpits, but not expressly stated in the Bible. Christians love to assume things and then present them as fact. So your pastor probably stopped thinking about this years ago and has long since decided that these two things are the same thing. But again, I beg to differ, and here are a few reasons why. Isaiah 14, 12 and Luke 10, 18 describe the same thing. This is the part where Isaiah says that he sees Lucifer falling from heaven, and Jesus says the exact same thing in Luke 10, 18. Isaiah prophesies this, and then Jesus parrots it later on. Right. Neither describe Lucifer slash Satan as having an entourage <laughs> when this fall occurred. That actually happens later. Revelations 12, 9 in the NIV says the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Bookmark the word angels. It's significant. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan's minions are in fact referred to as angels, not demons. It's not even the same word yeah. in the original text or whatever we have that's closest to the original text. It's not even the same word. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus confronts a legion of demons, and here they're actually called demons, and they are also presented in a very, very different way. And the reason why I think that these are different entities, that they're not synonymous terms, when you look at a story like the one that you find in Matthew chapter 8, you see behavior that is incredibly mischievous, chaotic, rebellious, possibly dangerous, with the descriptions that we get in the book of Revelation and in other places where it talks about Satan and his fallen angels, they're always presented in the context of angels and they're presented as beings that are a little bit above what we see in this one full account that we get of Jesus confronting demons in the New Testament. There are a lot of references to yeah. Jesus confronting demons, but... Only, I think, too, where you actually get any kind of context. There might be one or two others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. I, and I'm only thinking of two, and I think that's it. I think in every other instance, it just says that he went here and he cast out demons, and that was it, without any other context or information. Reading between the lines of what's in the book, I would personally conclude, and this is in no way scholarly or necessarily correct, all fiction is open to interpretation by the reader, and that's what this is, speculation on a work of fiction by a podcaster. But I would personally conclude that the demons we see in the New Testament were flat out not smart enough, cunning enough, or well-mannered enough 
to be Satan's henchmen or his soldiers. They just don't seem like they have it in them. They don't seem remotely capable of helping wage war. When I think about this, I think about the orcs in Lord of the Rings. We're coming back to that already. But even the orcs had enough self-control to follow orders. The demons in the New Testament are so batshit insane and out of control, they dive into pigs and throw themselves off cliffs. These two types of entities do not strike me as being similar. Mm. So with that, let's scrub that conversation and look directly at the creatures themselves as they are presented in various works of fiction, beginning with the Bible. In the New Testament, encounters with demons are all about the same. What they really are are manifestations of mental illness most predominantly. But since we're told these people are possessed by demons, it's the story we're going to run with. Matthew 8 and Mark 5 tell the same story about Legion and the pigs and all of that. There are veiled references to Jesus performing exorcisms with no real details other than that he cast out demons and told his followers that they could do the same. There is an interaction in Matthew 9 between Jesus and a demon-possessed man. In Matthew 17... Jesus then casts a demon out of a younger boy, and from there, it's just more, and yeah, he went here and did this and that and cast out demons. I wonder how long it took for the demons mm. to come back when Jesus left. You know, I'm just going to put that right out there because mm. I've already said what I think this is. They're manifestations of mental illness. He comes in and perceptibly does something about it, and I'm sure these people were fine for a little while, but what happened after he left with all due respect or disrespect and however you want to look at it this religion is so fake it doesn't even have real demons just these nebulous entities that jesus kept giving the gone get treatment to honestly there wasn't much to be afraid of when it came to demons until the catholic church stepped in and solved that little problem and you know what it's not just the catholics right. but they had a really really big role to play in this there are some people that are part of that religion that have some huge imaginations mm. so you know we're going to get into a little bit of that in a little while but before we start pointing fingers at specific groups of of christians and and denominations let's talk a little bit about the demonologies of some major religions both christian and non-christian beginning with the sumerians the sumerians like demons in their mythology their underworld was absolutely rife with them. Some of them were even capable of leaving the underworld to terrorize the living. How nice. Demons in the Sumerian tradition had specific purposes, some malevolent and some benevolent, but there were no devil worshippers in Sumer since demons aren't seen as creatures to be worshipped. Demons in Sumer, quote, know no food, know no drink, eat no flower offering, and drink no libation. In other words... There's really not much that you can do to curry their favor. Right. Judaism has no demons, no Satan, and no definitive doctrine regarding an afterlife. Boring, but more practical than most religions out there. But things must have been extra boring for the average Jew in the Middle Ages because some Jewish folklore does include demons, mostly with attributes borrowed from other traditions. These are not necessarily part of any kind of canon belief system or doctrine these are just stories that just happen to be jewish in origin there are no demons in the jewish religion just in these stories there are also three references to demons in the old testament all of which tend to lean more toward an interpretation of lesser gods and objects of idolatry these are found in leviticus 17 deuteronomy 22 Psalm 106 and Ecclesiastes 10. And I haven't done the exegesis on all of these <laughs> yeah. verses, but my best guess based on how this concept is presented is that the translators who wrote the English version, the first few English versions, the, the authorized version, King James version, the ones that were like the forerunners of the English translations of the Bible probably just used the closest word they could figure out to describe these things. And demon was actually a good word, you know, kind of like Anton LaVey. They wanted something that had punch. <laughs> yeah. So this is what they chose. And it doesn't necessarily mean 
these mythical beings that we call demons. So those couple of instances in the Old Testament are still not any proof that demons existed in Judaism. Now, to put this next part in perspective, Wikipedia gives each of the previous traditions a paragraph each. It literally gives the next 2,000 words synopsizing demonology in Christian traditions. Christians are obsessed with this subject, and it goes way beyond what's on this one page. But just to give you a thumbnail sketch, Christianity equates the snake in the garden with either Satan or a very savvy demon, even though any rabbi will tell you it was a snake. Some think the serpent was more humanoid, possibly with arms and legs, and was given its current form as punishment for fucking up Yahweh's plan to keep Adam and Eve children forever. This is commonly referred to as Adamic demonology. There are also those who derive doctrine revolving around demons to the apocryphal Book of Enoch, and that, of course, is called Enochian demonology. I'm going to try to condense the word salad in this entry into something concise, so here's hoping this makes sense. I've done my homework here kind of separating the meat from the bones, so hopefully this makes some sense. The early Enochic tradition bases its understanding of the origin of demons on the story of the fallen watchers led by Azazel. Some self-described scholars, mostly commentators with their own agendas, believe that two enigmatic figures, Azazel and Satan, exercised formative influence on early Judeo-Christian demonology. They are both framed as antagonists whose only real differences lie in how they carry out evil, chaos, and corruption. In later traditions, Satan, or Sataniel, is often depicted as leader of the fallen angels, while his conceptual rival, Azazel, is portrayed as a seducer of Adam and Eve. So, one likes war, unrest, and destruction, while the other just likes to fuck with things on a more situationally jarring level than one that's more kill-em-all in nature. Satan is the sociopath. Azazel is the social engineer. The whole thing is far more Zoroastrian than Christian or Jewish because, again, no demons in traditional Judaism. It took about a millennium for them to start showing up in the fanfics. We'll just put it that way. And just for the sake of honorable mention, let's look at demonology in a couple more religions just for a quick minute. In Islam, there are no creatures that fit the description of demons, but there are the jinn, or what we would call genies, which are said to have specific attributes, some of which are downright malevolent and meet the description of demons. There's a whole hierarchy of them, and I've linked to the wiki page if anyone wants to look more closely at this. There's also a whole very bizarre link between the jinn in Islam and various animals that I'm still trying to wrap my brain around and failing miserably. I had a huge who came up with this shit and what were they tripping on when they did moment <laughs> just reading through some of this. So I'm not going to start taking it apart right here. Yeah. If it's something you're interested in, the information's out there. All you got to do is tap. So hit that link to the Wikipedia page on demonology and scroll to the section demonology in Islam if you want to see what broke spider's brain this time around. There are either five or 12 classifications of the jinn depending on who you ask, mm. okay? Just like a lot of things in religion. Like it has a lot to do with who you ask. Now, I was stunned to learn that Buddhism has its own demonology. I had not, I, I was like whatever it was yesterday or the other day years old when <laughs> I learned that there were demons in Buddhism because that's not how I think about Buddhism. But apparently it does have its own demonology. Buddhism gives us a very lovable demon named Mara. He's a lot like Lot in the Old Testament, and the elements of his story are similar to that of Lot. But in this version, Mara is in fact a demon and has his own cult following here on Earth. Um, Demon-worshipping Buddhists. Uh, who knew? I sure as hell didn't. And if you think that's strange, the Taoists also have their own demonology built on Chinese Buddhism, and here's a little bit about that. The Surangama Sutra, a major Buddhist text, describes 50 demonic states, the so-called 50 skandamaras, which are negative, mirror-like reflections of, or deviations from, correct samhati, or meditative absorption states. In this context, 
demons are considered by Buddhists to be beings possessing some supernatural powers who in the past might have practiced Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, but due to practicing it incorrectly, fail to develop true wisdom and true compassion. That sucks which are inseparable attributes of an enlightened being such as a Buddha or Bodhisattva. Depending on the context, in Buddhism, demons may refer to both disturbed mind states and actual beings. Hmm. Finally, let's look at Hindu demonology just for a minute. No, you didn't mishear me this time either. Tap that 15-second repeat button and I'll say it again. Yes, there is demonology in Hinduism, but I do think that some of this is a bit of a stretch. Vedic scriptures include a range of spirits. Batalas, Rakshasas, Buddhas, and Pishakas that might be, might be classified as demons. These spirits are souls of beings that have committed certain specific sins. As a purging punishment, they are condemned to roam without a physical form for a length of time until a rebirth. Beings that died with unfulfilled desires or anger are also said to linger until such issues are resolved. Hindu text Atharvaveda gives an account of nature and habitats of such spirits, including how to persuade and control them. There are occult traditions in Hinduism that seek to control such spirits to do their bidding. There we go again, right back to occultism. So that's just a taste. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny taste of all the traditions that are out there and how they approach this subject of demon and their own demonologies. Christian authors, let's let's bring it right back around to the subject at hand. Christian authors throughout history have written about demons for various purposes. There was Thomas Aquinas with his Summa Theologica question number 114, which for one question has a lot of parts to it. It's a yeah. five-parter, and every sub-question is more ridiculous than the one before. It poses the five-part question, are men assailed by demons? Is proper to the devil to tempt, whatever that actually means, um, are all the sins of men to be set down to the assaults or temptations of the demons? Can they work real miracles for the purpose of leading men astray? And are the demons who are overcome by men hindered from making further assaults? I'm looking at this and my first thought is who the fuck even cares? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the definition of overthinking. Yes. And just the simple fact that there is this entire section of this book that is devoted to this five-part question... It reads to me like someone who is trying to develop his own D&D module mm. and is trying to make things sound as real in his own head as he possibly can. Mm. But Thomas Aquinas isn't the only one out there. Things actually do get a lot darker and a lot more sinister when it comes to different authors and their handling of demons. Heinrich Kramer, author of the Malleus Maleficarum, you know, most witches' favorite book ever. Yeah, right. Um, he wrote about how to find and what to do with people believed to be involved with demons. He didn't seem to care so much about demons. He just cared about punishing people mm. who seemed to be consorting with or were influenced by or involved with demons. Oh, and in case it wasn't obvious, forgiveness was not on the menu. Yeah. Nothing in the Malleus Maleficarum had anything to do with forgiveness. It was about the eradication of these sorts of things. Right. Um, I'm going to hand things over to Shell. I asked you to do some research yes. on this part of it, the Lesser Key of Solomon, mm -hmm. and some of the details with that. So you're going to introduce us to a few of your favorite demons from yes. this particular work. And let me tell you, this doesn't even scratch the surface. No, it really doesn't. But these are just a few of the more interesting ones <laughs> in the bunch. So yeah. let's talk about the Lesser Key of Solomon. The Lesser Key of Solomon is actually part of the Greater Key of Solomon. It's like a part. Go ahead. It's the Lesser Key. Okay. Um, it's an anonymous grimoire purported to be written by King Solomon. It wasn't. Of course it wasn't. <laughs> this document is divided into five books, one of which is the Ars Goeda. And I'm not going to even ask you to say the names of the other ones. I mean, I'm, I'm looking no, at this. No, they're, they're, they're 
Yeah, they're just... It's linked. Yes, it's, it's linked. It's in the show it's, notes. It's, you want to know, take a look. Right. The word Goetia deals with the evocation or summoning of demons. The Goetia lists the names and ranks of the demons and also lists the 72 demonic sigils. Overthought. It's not just for Dante anymore. No. Oh, my goodness. The Goetic demons are divided into several ranks. Kings, dukes, princes, marquises, earls, knights, and presidents, which I'm presidents. like laughing about. Presidents. Okay. Presidents. That's very, very extra. Yeah. And it's so out of place with everything else on it this really list. It really is. It's Couldn't like, they have come up with something a little bit more regal? I mean, was there well, nothing there are, left? There is a king. They're, they're, they're kings, all male, I guess. Princes. I guess you got the hierarchies here. Yes. And then all you can really come up with is presidents. Okay. Yes. All right. So describe some of these. Well, there is the demon person. He is a great king of hell, being served and obeyed by 22 legions of demons. That's person or per, person, person, I guess, would, would work. But, but P-U-R-S-O-N. Is how you're going to spell that. Yes. He knows of hidden things, can find treasures, and tells past, present, and future. Taking on a human or aerial body, he answers truly of all secret and divine things of earth and the creation of the world. He also brings good familiars. Person is depicted as a man with the face of a lion, carrying a ferocious viper in his hand, and riding a bear. Before him, there can be heard... Many trumpets sounding. And again, where did these people find all the fucking acid it would take to come up with this shit? <laughs> oh, and where the illustrations are even awesome. So oh, I'm sure. They're just, they're funny as heck. And here's the demon Stolas. Uh, he is a great prince of hell, commands 26 legions of demons. He teaches astronomy and is knowledgeable about herbs, plants, and precious stones. He is often depicted as a raven or a crowned owl with long legs. He's probably my favorite, mostly because his illustration looks like a very bewildered owl that isn't sure why he's here or what's going on. And how fitting is that? Yes. In the context he of just, this. He looks so confused. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of endearing. I just think it's funny that he teaches astronomy. To whom? Yeah, that's, that's I'm what I'm thinking. To whom? It's like, would, would I like unwittingly walk into his classroom at a university or something like that who precisely is he teaching the other astronomy teachers so that they get it as wrong as they possibly can i don't know it's crazy i just don't know who's next all right i got one more his name is realm he is a great earl of hell ruling 30 legions of demons he is depicted as a crow which adopts human form at the request of the conjurer Realm steals treasures out of king's houses, carrying them where he wishes, and destroys cities and dignities of men. He is said to have great dispraise for dignities. Realm can also tell things past, present, and future, reconcile friends and foes, and invoke love. That's a lot. And that's a lot. That's, that's a tiny sampling yes. from just this one source. And they're all, like, extremely odd-looking. This is how much... People have thought about this over the years, especially in Christian traditions. There is an obsession over the subject of demons and their descriptions have gotten more colorful over time. But I I do think that the classics actually that they win in terms of the creativity aspect of this and just how batshit those descriptions are. It's like these things we we have to remember they all come out of people's minds. Yes. And you know, it really does make me even more of a believer in the concept of a reprobate mind yes. to know that this stuff comes out of people's heads. Yeah. Yeah. It really it really does. Now, fast forward a whole lot of years and you get even more outrageous literature on demons from evangelical idiots like Bob Larson, Frank Peretti and Jack Chick. That's a name that really does not taste good rolling off the tongue. And we will, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to that that episode. We're going to talk about tracts and talk about Jack Chick. But all these people made careers out of their own interpretations and hysterical rantings about demons, especially Jack Chick in the hysterical rantings category. And also on 
demonic influence over humanity. And this concept is not going away anytime soon. There will always, and I mean always, be an audience for it. The problem is that people who watch movies about demons understand the concept of fiction while the average Jack Chick disciple believes it all implicitly and litters the world with tracts warning people about demons and the calamity they cause. Now, demons, since we're talking about literature, demons are very popular in literature of all sorts, as well as other creative properties. You have... Yeah, you have a little bit that you want to uh, that you want to share on this one yeah. too, and guess what? We're going to start by revisiting one of our good friends on oh, this subject. Only shortly, because I spoke a lot about Dante's Inferno, and I don't think anybody wants to hear me go on about more of it. Oh my but, goodness! Yes, but you know what? I'm glad that we went into that kind of detail because yes. it just proves the point of how committed this yes. guy was. To basically sending anyone and everyone he could to hell. Yes. That was that was, was most of the point of it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and he's the king of overthought. Yes, yes he is. Um, of course, Dante's Inferno has all sorts of demons who actually seem to run the day-to-day of hell, since the devil himself is chained up at the bottom of the nine rings of hell. Since we've covered the Inferno a couple of episodes ago, I'll move on. Thank you. <laughs> One of the classics that... I immediately thought of when thinking about fictional works was the tragical history of the life and death of Dr. Faustus. This is an Elizabethan play by Christopher Marlowe based on the Faust legend from Germany. This was written between 1589 and 1592. The powerful effect of early productions of the play is indicated by the legends that actual devils once appeared on the stage during a performance to the great amazement of both the actors and spectators, a sight that was said to have driven some spectators mad. Interesting. Very. The play covers the life of Dr. Faust, a very intelligent and learned man who is also very arrogant. He claims that he has mastered every subject he has ever studied, so now he's going to learn necromancy. As one does. He ends up making a bargain with the demon Mephistopheles, who brings him a bargain from Lucifer. 24 years of using magic with Mephistopheles as his servant, after which he will belong to the devil, body, and soul. Faust makes the bargain. I won't spoil the end for you, but you can probably guess... This is where the phrase Faustian bargain comes from. Yeah, yeah, I can see where that's going. And just the whole notion, I'm, there are so many iterations of yes. this same concept. Right. And it's like, I've never, ever, ever understood the logic yeah. of giving this tiny little portion of your mortal life yes. and swapping it for an eternity yeah. of servitude to the devil. And yes. it's never, I mean, how starved for comfort and, you know, anything that feels good would you have to be yeah. to make that kind of a deal it's yeah and no i'm not going to spoil it either but it's uh it's it's a good one i definitely recommend spending yeah. some time and uh, at least reading a good synopsis yeah it's an uh, interesting spoilers story. and all at least get the cliff notes version it's good yeah so i also asked you to take a look at something a little bit more specific here and catholicism i think has a lot to add to the mix here and Again, this is one of those things we could literally sit here all night and talk about how the Catholic Church has approached the subject of demons over the years. But I like that you kind of summarized this with a couple of stories. Right. So I'm going to just leave it to you to tell those stories. And this is from our friends in the Catholic Church. Yes. Um, Tell us what you got. In general, there are only a few demons often called devils in Christianity mentioned in the New Testament. There's Satan, the arch-enemy of the Christ, Lucifer, the fallen light-bearer, and the originally Canaanite Beelzebub, the lord of flies, or perhaps Beelzebul, the lord of dung, mentioned by Jesus, are all devils. As a singular demonic force or personification of evil, the devil's chief activity was to tempt humans to act in such a way that they would not achieve their supraterrestrial destiny. There's, yeah. there's a $64 word for yeah, you right, right there. Because demons were in, 
were believed to inhabit waterless wastelands, early Christian monks went into the deserts to be the vanguard of God's army in joining battle with tempting devils. They often recorded that the devil came to them in visions as a seductive woman, tempting them to violate their vows to keep themselves sexually pure, both physically and mentally. Yeah, more of the devil made me do it. Okay. Devil made All me right. do it. I looked for specific stories about folklore, but I didn't find as much as I expected. One story that is interesting is that time when St. Peter of Verona exercised a demon-possessed statue of the Virgin Mary and the Christ Child. This took place around the mid-1200s. Hold up, hold up, hold up. So a Christian can't be possessed by a demon, but a statue of Jesus himself and his mother can. I guess. Okay, all right, keep going. (laughs) While there is not much information on this event, there was a fresco done on it. The so-called demon-possessed statues both have little horns and are looking with really angry faces at St. Peter. Seems like it wasn't a good meeting. No, not at all. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall during that particular event. Sounds like a wild time. Very. So just to put a little bit of a cap on that, because again, I don't want to spend forever on it, but there's a comprehensive list of demons in a number of world religions on Wikipedia that I have also linked to. Yes. And anything that says Christianity by and large, with only a few exceptions, you can read that as Catholic. Yes. Most of this stuff comes from Catholic traditions, and boy, oh boy, where there are a lot of people in the Catholic Church that put a lot of thought into this, too. Yeah. You know, the overthinking part of it doesn't just belong to Dante. No. It's it's been a thing with the Catholics for a long, long time. They like coming up with new ways to scare people. Well, you got to figure that there were a lot of monks who just, I mean, all they did was write. Yeah. All they did was think about theological things. Yeah. So, and the things that that um, scared them personally, too. Yeah. A lot of this was purgation. A lot of it was therapy. Yeah. So, yeah. But it all had the same purpose. And that right. was to basically scare the living shit out of you so that you <laughs> keep coming to church, so that you keep buying your indulgences, that you, so that you just keep the money flowing into the organization. That's really what it boils down to. You know, we talked a long time ago about how they use fear as a motivator. Well, you know, even though I was fed a lot of lines as an evangelical, I don't think that there's an evangelical organization out there that can hold a candle to the Catholic church when it comes to fear mongering. And the subject of demons is a huge example of that. Oh, sure. Most of the stories about demons in Catholicism come from records of demon possessions and exorcisms. That's also where a lot of the theology comes in Mm -hmm. and a lot of the things that people go and run with for folklore. Right. One of the stories that I found was called Michael Ludwig and the Demon, in which a young man obsessed with gambling makes a deal with a gambling buddy who turned out to be a demon to pay off debts and thereafter showed all the classic signs of demon possession. The next morning and every day thereafter, the tempter returned to Michael. He persuaded him to stop the religious devotions he practiced every day and began to teach him terrible secrets and depraved new pleasures. This continued for six years and more as Michael continued his decline into a dark and sinful life. It was at this point, dreading the approach of the seventh year, that his father called him home. Expecting a young man of refined sensibilities developed at court, he found instead a lost soul leading a rough and vicious life. With only months remaining on his contract with the demon, Michael began to descend into madness, urged on to greater depravities by his demon. He poisoned his parents and set fire to their castle, but God made them immune to the poison and doused the fire. So he actually did something nice. Yeah. I'll say proactive. Yeah. Yeah. It it could also be like the reason they're still alive is because God saved them. Yeah. Now there's no evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. After also trying to kill himself, his brother, who was in the religious orders, tied up his brother tightly and brought him to the Jesuits at Molsheim. After praying to St. Ignatius and wrestling with the demons, sort of like an exorcism pregame show, they finally started the exorcism. Here's a quote from the article. They offered a votive mass of St. Ignatius where Ludwig professed his faith, 
renounced the devil, and then received the Eucharist. At that moment, he cried out in horror that two he-goats stood on their hind legs on either side of him, each holding one of the oaths he had written between their forepaws. The priests began the rite of exorcism and invoked the name of Ignatius, and at once the goats fled, and one of the papers fluttered to the ground from his now open wound, which then closed, leaving barely a mark. Again, what was the wound? The demon made him bleed his blood so that he could write his name and his oath in blood. Okay. And then stuck one of the rolled up papers in there that he had signed and sewed it back up again under his skin. Ew. Yeah, ew. But it, it's a very demon-y sort of thing to it do. It is a very demon-y sort of thing. But his wound closed, leaving barely a mark. Again, no evidence. <laughs> and isn't that just yes. so convenient? Yes. That left one of the compacts yet to be recovered. He wrote two of them. So the priests continued their rites of exorcism. As they once again invoked the name of St. Ignatius, a huge and horribly deformed stork appeared to all and dropped the second paper from its beak, then vanished. The papers were sought on the floor but could not be found. Only later were they discovered on the altar next to a renunciation of the devil written by Michael Ludwig. And... This is the sum up. Thus delivered from his horrible compact with the evil spirit, and from the suffering and agony consequent thereupon, freed from the dreadful temptations which hurried him to crime and reconciled to God and the church, the young Ludwig ever after led a holy and Christian life, never forgetting the obligations he was under to the saint through whose intercession he obtained his deliverance. And I'm sure there were a number of offerings that were made to the saint, well, uh, yes. but I don't think the saint ever saw any of it. No, because he was dead. Yeah, this has all the earmarks of the story of your Canadian girlfriend that <laughs> you know nobody knows because she's not from around here. Right. No evidence of any such thing ever occurring. <laughs> it's yeah, they cover their tracks in a way that you know if your IQ is below say fifty. Maybe you're going to be able to uh, ooh and ah at this a little bit. Yeah. But it doesn't take a whole lot of brains to know what's going on here. No, it really, it really doesn't. So that's a little bit of the classics, not necessarily all ancient texts. There were definitely some contemporaries in there. But I want to look even further ahead in time at this point and look at demons in contemporary fiction. In most Western traditions, there are very fuzzy lines drawn between entities like ghosts, goblins, ghouls, demons, and all types of evil spirits. In the movies, all of the above are at one time or another referred to as demonic forces. And the term demon is used in some very creative ways in certain books like the His Dark Materials series by Philip Pullman. In these stories, the word demon is used to describe souls. In Pullman's universe, people's souls manifest as physical entities, specifically animals. It's an interesting distinction, and I like this description from theconversation.com, and again, the link is there. In his dark materials, Pullman created a world in which each human being is born with a demon, their externalized individual consciousness that takes the shape of an animal. Through the conceit of a demon. Pullman illustrates what it's like to have a soul and how our souls change as we grow. And by soul, he is talking more in this context about personality, right. how we go from being children who, you know, basically have this very simple view of life, the universe and everything. And then we develop this sense of autonomy and the real us starts to emerge. So I think it's actually a real interesting concept, but, you know, bookmark his descriptor of demon here. Demons are material beings, crystallizations of consciousness particles that are attracted to and make themselves most fully apparent in humans. Demons can change shape in children, but settle in one permanent shape at puberty. Again, once you reach that point where you're developing that sense of autonomy and you have more of a sense of who you are, that's when your demon is just going to be what it is for the rest of your life. They always take the form of a real-world animal species and of the opposite gender to their human. They seem to be separate beings, but are an integral part of oneself. So basically, Pullman uses the term demon as a manifestation of human conceit. 
This falls on the heels of a number of depictions of demons in other sources, but it presents them as being a present and inseparable part of a person's existence. The demon may not be the kind of malevolent, scary thing that demons have been depicted to be in other sources, but not all demons are insane chaos-causing minions. It's also noteworthy for anyone who isn't familiar with the story that Pullman is very, very anti-religion. His Dark Materials deals with concepts that center on the possibility of literally killing God, which appalled me as yeah. a theist when right. like the Golden Compass came out like a bunch of years ago now. I found the concept appalling. Now I'm like, oh, tell me more. Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense that he would depict people's personal demons as ever-present and not always acting on a person's best interests because the demons in these stories don't always give good advice yeah. and they don't always lead people into good places. That is his Dark Materials in a nutshell. I believe there's now a series for this that I haven't had a chance to, uh, to look at, but I think it would be interesting. I think the books would be interesting too. Yeah. This is another one of those situations where it was a back then sort of thing where I'm like, yeah, I think I know enough about this. And now it's like, mm, tell me more. But moving along, it's not just books. I referenced this movie a few weeks ago too. And I think that I would love to, if things work out next week, if we get on the same page with this and it works out and we produce something good out of it, I totally and completely want to look at dogma right. at one point or another here. And there is one central demon in dogma. There are a couple of demons in dogma, but the central figure is Azrael, played by Jason Lee in the movie. And this is a synopsis of his role in the movie, according to fandom.com. A former muse, Azrael fell from grace by refusing to take part in battle during the war in heaven. As a result, he was banished to hell along with Lucifer and his followers. Azrael is primarily responsible for the events that take place in the film. He is the one who informed the banished angels Bartleby and Loki about a loophole in Catholic dogma that the pair could exploit in order to return to heaven though he neglected to tell them that doing so would result in the unmaking of all creation. The motivation behind this plot is simply that Azrael can no longer stand enduring existence in hell and would rather erase all of existence than go back to that. So he promises them something that he knows they will never see. And that right there is the premise of the movie. I won't give away more than that until we cover it on our own here. Right. But if you've never seen it, and you can actually find a copy somewhere, good luck with that, definitely watch it. But as I was reading that, of course, I started thinking, okay, this entire movie was Kevin Smith's way of kind of bitch-slapping the Catholic Church. So let's see if Asriel in Catholic lore is the same as Asriel in this movie. And surprise, surprise, not even close. The depiction of him in the movie Dogma is a lot different than the Catholic version. And here is just a little bit of that Catholic version. Before the creation of man, Azrael proved to be the only angel brave enough to go down to earth and face the hordes of Iblis, the devil, in order to bring God the materials needed to make man. For this service, he was made the angel of death and given a register of all mankind. That is a direct quote from Encyclopedia Britannica entry on Azrael. And yes, that was also the name of uh, Gargamel's cat in, uh, in the Smurfs. <laughs> yes. In case you're wondering where else you might have heard that name, probably there. Yeah. And there's that angel-demon dichotomy that plagues interpretations of some things in the Bible. You know, the whole fallen angels versus demons thing, well, it kind of plays in here a little bit. And I would be remiss, since we're talking about modern literature at this right. point, I would be remiss, we would be remiss, not mentioning Good Omens. Yes. Because the, there's some good stuff in there. Um, good Omens is, of course, a novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Again, if you haven't read it, this is one that I definitely recommend. It's a story that revolves around an angel and a demon who basically stand between the human race and Armageddon. Yes. So actually, I, I feel like you're better at explaining this than I am. Yeah. So I'm going to hand you the reins and, and talk about Good Omens just for a couple of minutes. Sure. Um, Crowley 
is the demon in the book. He is my favorite fictional demon. I mean, they're all fictional, but well, Crowley is awesome. And he has lived on Earth with his angelic counterpart, Aziraphale, since its creation. He is not a very demony demon. As a demon, he did not precisely fall from heaven as he vaguely sauntered downwards. He hung out with too many of the wrong people. So, you know, God just basically disassociated himself, didn't like smite him out of heaven. No, he just just sort of of, wandered down. Yes, you know, you just, you can can go now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, pretty much. Um, He greatly enjoys living on Earth, and his favorite band is Queen. Well, at least he has some taste. Yes. He drives a 1926 Bentley, causing his fellow demons to call him a flash bastard. Other demons don't like him very much because he likes Earth way too much. Yeah. His London flat contains a lot of gorgeous, lush plants, which are also terrified of Crowley's threats to drop them off the balcony if they don't grow well. So, of course, they grow really, really Really well. well. The Mm -hmm. ones he keeps are nice. When it comes to temptations, he's not working on people to merely commit deeds of lust or greed. He works for long-term evil. That's the best kind. Yes. He also aided in the design of the M25, which is a highway in England. So it would be in the shape of the demonic sigil Odegra, causing a circle of low-level evil to be produced around London by the motorists and making it incredibly frustrating to drive on. <laughs> That's o- great. I love Odegra it. means hail the great beast, devourer of worlds, in the language of the black priesthood of ancient Mu. The design earned him a commendation. He also likes to tie up phone lines. See, he's really not all that demonic. So he's basically just an asshole. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. And he's best friends with an angel. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how demonic can he be? Well, I mean, there are so many different uh, definitions of demonic and what that actually entails. So, you know, when you say that he's not very demonic, well, it depends on whose interpretation right. you are going by when you say that. Yeah. Because as we mentioned earlier, not Every act of every demon is yes. malevolent. There are benevolent demons in some right. in, in, in some, some traditions. Yeah, but these are definitely Christian demons because all the rest of them pretty much hate Crowley because he's not like them. Right. Well, I mean, they're Christian demons, so I mean, hate is just part of the equation. Right. You don't have to. And I mean, you could be Christian anything and be really, really, really good at hate. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're taught. Yeah. Um. So. You know, when, again, there's there are many, many, many more examples of demons in books and movies and everything else that we could spend. I mean, I, how long of a series do you yeah. suppose we could we we oh. could probably do our own podcast about demons, just demons. on demons, and not run out of things to talk about for a very, very long time. It's true. So, you know, again, this is another one of those Unbound October survey classes. You know, yes. we're talking in very limited terms yeah. about all of this stuff. But there's more. I mean, this is this. I was going to say it's the tip of the iceberg. This is a crystal at the top of the tip of an iceberg. Okay. <laughs> there's so much that's out there. Um, demons and demonic anything are big business. They oh, yeah. really are. They sell a lot of books. And unfortunately, they also sell a lot of lies. Yes. Um, and speaking of lies, let's bring the conversation a little more full circle because this particular podcast is, in fact, about evangelicalism. So let's get the evangelicals a little bit in the crosshairs here. Now, all of this history is wonderful. And it does give us a better perspective on how various cultures approach the subject of demons. But... Again, on this show, we still deal specifically with evangelical Christianity. So with that in mind, I want to aim the crosshairs at evangelicalism for a few minutes and just comment a bit on how they manage. And let's be real here to weaponize the concept of demons. Mm. For starters, we've talked in our episode about exorcism about how evangelicals have basically cornered the market mm. on this particular subject. You know, we, we think about movies like The Exorcist, 
and immediately we think about the Catholic Church in terms of exorcisms. But the level of activity in the, in the Catholic Church that revolves around exorcism can't even hold a candle to what the evangelicals do. And then when you get somebody high profile, like, say, Bob Larson, mm -hmm. who has a daily talk show that is rife with content about this. And he didn't only talk about this, but after a while, he started realizing, I think, just how much of a commodity demons were. And it started taking up a lot of airtime. And it started taking up a lot of what he was doing off air. And it morphed into him embarking on this whole exorcism ministry that is very, very, very over the top. I, I used to listen to his show every single day. <laughs> and even then, he was like the definition of the Christian shock jock. Yeah. Okay? If there was any way to describe Bob Larson, it would have been that. That he was basically a Christian shock jock. But... Over the course of the last couple of decades, he has made a career out of exorcism and churning up this idea that demons are real and that they affect people every day and you better watch out. And if they get you, just call me and I'll take care of it. That sort of thing. And also, I think we, we touched on this a little bit before, but I'm going to just just going to Reader's Digest a couple of these here Again, in case there there's someone out there that's listening to this episode and hasn't listened far enough back to have heard some of the other conversations on this, a lot of times mental health issues are going to be attributed to demons. Yeah. And, you know, evangelicals love to, to take mental illness and just slap it with the moniker of demons and yeah. so many different kinds of demons that can oppress you or possess you depending on whether or not you're a real Christian. You know, they on the one hand, they say that Christians can't be demon-possessed, and then a Christian becomes demon-possessed, and then the, um, then the excuse is, well, you were never really a Christian. You didn't mean it when you prayed your sinner's prayer, and that's what happened to you. And that was God calling you out, and now you have a chance to do it the right way. I mean, I, I heard that more than once. But... Most mental health issues, they're going to be attributed to demons. And I'm also thinking back on our conversation on Christian counseling and how, honestly, it feels to me like most of the training that you get as a Christian counselor revolves around the ability to just tag everything with demon possession. Because, I mean, they, they don't do anything constructive to be able to help anyone. It always has to have some other source. You know, it, it's not something that's going on in a person's mind that can be worked through. No, they have a demon and they need to be exercised. That's Christian counseling in a nutshell. It's like how many ways there are for a person to have demons. You've got demons that impede self-improvement. You know, they'll talk about demons of obesity, demons yeah. of laziness. Demons of distraction, and yes, even demons of depression and anxiety. These can't yep. possibly be medical conditions. No, they have to have this supernatural origin that can just be wiped out with the right prayer, the yep. right laying on of hands, the right incantations, words, or degree of forcefulness from whoever is doing the exorcism. These things can just go away. Well, yeah. I think we all know how well that works. Yeah. Um, these were some of my favorites, too. The demons of lust. Yeah. Um, it's demons that are the driving forces behind all perceived sin. The devil makes you do it. Or at least one of his underlings makes you do it. But, you know, to, to put a cap on that, demon possession, basically blame for everything. Yes. Because it's an easy way to sweep every problem that we have as human beings under the rug. It's demons. You are having these problems because your faith isn't strong enough. So we'll pray for you, but you have to do your part too. If the demons don't leave, and this is how they get around the mental illness part. If the demons don't leave, it's because you don't have enough faith to mm -hmm. make them leave. Right. It's not that you need medication. It's not that you need therapy. It's that you need to pray harder. Ugh. Oh, you know, we, we've, we've had this conversation before. So before I get too heated up... Let's just put a little bit of a cap on this conversation. It's shorter than average here, but you know what? I'm really gearing up for next week. I'm really, really looking forward to tackling this subject and looking at the psychology of it a little bit. And incidentally, I'm noticing 
that a bunch of people are downloading our episodes from last October. This is why we do this at this time of year. And I think as a precursor to next week, I'm going to invite you to take a look at our episode on Salem Mm -hmm. because a lot of what we talk about there, the possible causes of the witchcraft hysteria in Salem, they show up in the movie The Witch. So I think that it's good foundational stuff for you to know and understand. And also, if you haven't heard it yet, Shell and I tell this story from a perspective that let's just say you're not going to get this story on any tour in Salem, okay? And I think you'll be very, very surprised at how it actually plays out. But again, some of the details there, I think, springboard well into what we're going to be talking about next week. So just to put a little bit of a cap on our conversation about demons, the bottom line here, as far as I'm concerned, is very simple. Everywhere that demons show up, they are at best nothing more than literary devices or at worst, they're scare tactics. Even the oldest religions and mythologies have employed the use of these enigmatic, often vaguely defined entities to either blame the individual for his or her shortcomings, illnesses, or perceived sins, or to simply scare people into compliance. That's the bigger part of it, I think. And we've heard it all before many, many times and a few times tonight. A Christian can't be demon-possessed. So, you better become a Christian. You know, I have news for you. They don't bother atheists either. So don't cower before a God who doesn't exist and would hate you enough to sick demons on you to get you to obey him if he did. Instead of being fearful of things like demons, do a little bit more of what you did tonight and educate yourself more about them and about other things your religion has taught you to be afraid of. Because once you get it out of your head that these things are real and out to get you, the silliness of it can be very entertaining. I don't know about anybody else, but I learned a lot researching this episode and had fun with it. People's imaginations do some weird shit. And just some of the stories that we talked about, and again, Crystal at the tip of the iceberg, you know, just the couple of little examples that we shared tonight, there's some weird ass shit out there. (laughs) But here's the thing about understanding and knowing the truth. Understanding is key to being able to see things for what they are. And you know what? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for coming back every week to become educated about the things your religion lies to you about. And if you're consuming some of the other content that's out there that shines a light on all of this bullshit that is Christianity and evangelicalism in particular, just keep doing what you're doing. You're going to think about the things that you feed your brain. As I've said many times before on this show, seek the truth wherever it leads. I'm not saying... Approach this with confirmation bias because you're on your way out of this and you want to listen to voices who also don't believe. Don't just follow those voices. Vet what they have to say and ask yourself how much of what they have to say makes sense versus how much of what you've been taught from the pulpit makes sense. So that, in a nutshell, is the point of what we do and what a lot of other atheist uh, content creators do. We want to basically present our side so that you can vet the information and decide for yourself what makes more sense. That's always been the aim of this show, and I hope that we've succeeded in that task for another episode. And along those lines, as you do a little bit more research, maybe you heard something tonight that you found interesting and you want to go out and learn just a little bit more about it. When you do, Prepare to be entertained, not threatened or intimidated. The stories we're told about demons are so outlandish. I can't see any clear avenue to taking any of it seriously. But I also don't blame you or judge you for having lingering doubts or fears surrounding things like this. These things run deep. They're crammed into our psyches in a way that ensures they maintain their foundations for a long, long, long time. So please don't think that I'm making light of what your experiences have been. I know how terrifying this is because there was a time in my life where I completely believed that I could see demons and that they were influencing me. They were in my home. There was a point in time where I 
Do you remember me yeah. going around and anointing every doorpost with oil because yeah. I was convinced that there were demons in our house? Yep. Oh, yeah. Believe me when I tell you, I know how deep these thoughts can run. And I know how hard these people work to drive this stuff home with us and try and make it real inside our heads. But even their own book outs them in this instance where it says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, welcome to your first few steps of freedom. Between this show and the things that you learn on your own and all the other content that's out there that will help guide you in the right direction, you are on the right path. You are doing what you need to do and you're thinking about this the right way. Don't doubt that you are thinking about this the right way if you are at the point now where you're starting to understand just how ridiculous it is. It is ridiculous. When those seeds of doubt creep in and you start feeling afraid, just ask yourself what makes more sense, what you hear from a source like this or what you've heard from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. If you've been traumatized by the concept of demons, told that you have demons, or are just so conditioned to be afraid of them to the point where those fears won't leave you alone, you know what? Talk to a licensed secular therapist, secular therapist about it. Read some scholarly articles on the mythologies we've mentioned and on others that we didn't. Do your best to understand the subject of demons from historical and mythological perspectives absent of spiritual commentary. That is very important, okay? Don't look to sources that, that have bias built in. Look at sources that are scholarly and objective, that present information in a way that allows you to draw your own conclusions. And the more you know, the more you're going to understand. And the more you understand, the less afraid you're going to be. And the less afraid you become of all the things that your religion wants you to believe are out to get you, the closer you'll move at that point toward getting and staying unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.